Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, 18 Down, the main active shooter incident. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. As we come on the air tonight, a massive manhunt underway hours after a mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, home to Bates College. It left at least 20 believed dead and dozens more injured. Law enforcement releasing images of a person of interest holding what appears to be an assault-style rifle, entering a bowling alley and a second location. The only thing that we heard was this really loud bang, and a lot of us thought like a bowling ball kind of like smashed on the ground or something. To respond to the town of Wilson for two active shooter locations, all available units. At approximately 6.56 this evening, uh, a couple of shooting incidents occurred here with multiple casualties in the city of Lewiston. Police say the person of interest, 40-year-old Robert Card. Card is considered armed and dangerous. He is a person of interest, however, and that's what we'll uh, label him at uh, moving forward until that changes. If people see him, they should not approach Card or make contact with him in any way. As October 2023 was nearing its end, most people were thinking about Halloween on the evening of October 25th. The almost 40,000 residents of Lewiston, Maine, were preparing for the weekend activities. The Lewiston Library was hosting a spooktacular science show. The local bowling spot, Just In Time Recreation, was bustling with business as it was hosting its family league event, and most local restaurants were just getting into the heart of the dinner rush. Or so that was the case for Shemenji's Bar and Grill. The temperature had dipped below 40 degrees that evening, as Maine was on the verge of transitioning from summer into fall. It was the coldest day of the month so far. Bob, who was 76 and just days away from turning 77, loved bowling almost as much as he loved his wife, Lucille Violet, or Lucy, who was 73 years old. Together, the Violets taught the Wednesday Youth Bowling League. The thundering roar of bowling balls likely reverberated through the building with 22 lanes of fun for families to enjoy. The bowling alley had recently remodeled, adding a bar and grill, making it a favorite hangout for many Lewiston residents. 4.2 miles away on Lincoln Street, Shemenji's Bar and Grill restaurant buzzed with excitement. Shemenji's was more than a bar and grill, though. With billiards, dartboards, and other fun activities, it was a fun-for-all location where groups were able to host events such as parties and social gatherings. On this Wednesday, several members of the Maine deaf community, to include 36-year-old Joshua Seal, who was an American Sign Language interpreter and the director of interpreting services for Pine Tree Society, was participating in a cornhole tournament at the restaurant. On a night that was so full of fun, laughter, and enjoyment, no one could have predicted the unimaginable tragedy that was preparing to unfold as U.S. Army Reservist Robert Card, with a newly purchased Ruger small frame auto-loading rifle, an AR-10 framed rifle that's light and mobile with extended magazines, made his way through the city of Lewiston and he was headed to just-in-time recreation a location he was familiar with, as Card liked to bowl on his free time. He arrived at 6.56 p.m. that evening, and then everything changed. 
Lewiston, Maine is the second most populated state in Maine with about 38,000 residents. The town was founded in the late 1600s along the Androscoggin River, lying between the state's capital in Augusta and Portland, Maine's largest city. Settled by Irish immigrants and with a large Syrian immigrant population, it has grown to be a diverse metropolis with a low cost of living, substantial access to health care, and a low crime rate. That is why what occurred on October 25th of 2023 was so devastating to the community. As the town went about their normal activities, approximately an hour after sunset, an inconspicuous 40-something-year-old pulled into the newly rebranded Just-In-Time Recreation Bowling Center, formerly known as Spare Time, at 24 Mollison Way in Lewiston. He parked his white 2013 Subaru Outback and grabbed his newly purchased Ruger SFAR with extended magazines before walking into the bowling center. In a flash, the festive atmosphere transformed from celebratory to chaotic as a 5'11", 230-pound Army reservist wearing a brown hoodie sweatshirt, dark pants, and light shoes took a military stance as he entered the bowling alley and opened fire. Immediately, laughter turned to screams smiles into fear. The distinct sound of semi-automatic gunfire sent everyone running for their lives, lives that would be forever altered. As the timeline began to unravel, a story began to develop. At 6.56 p.m., the first 911 call was received about a shooting at the bowling center. Two minutes later, at 6.58 p.m., four plainclothes police officers rushed to the scene from a nearby gun range when they heard the gunfire. When they arrived, the gunman was gone. By 7 p.m., additional police units were arriving at the bowling alley, and by 7.08 p.m., state troopers were arriving on the scene. As law enforcement and emergency services raced to the scene, many hoped that the shooter had been stopped, apprehended, or killed. What they didn't know is that the shooter wasn't done. At 7.10 p.m., state police received a report of a shooting at Shimanji's Bar and Grill. A short drive from the Just-In-Time Recreation Bowling Center, Shimenji's Bar and Grill was hosting a cornhole tournament, and a large part of the main deaf community was in participation. The shooter pulled into a parking stall, parking his white Subaru, changed magazines before entering the smaller venue of the Bar and Grill, void of remorse and of any humanity. He began targeting innocent individuals at random. Police and first responders began arriving at Shimanji's at 7.13 p.m., but the shooter had already left. They worried that he might be heading to a third or maybe a fourth target location. By 8 p.m., the Maine State Police issued an alert of an active shooter warning residents to shelter in place and lock their doors. The photo of the shooter began circulating, and now police had an idea of who they were looking for. At 8.26 p.m., the neighboring city of Auburn issued their alert for their residents to shelter in place. The gunman was still loose and potentially targeting other local venues. Intense search for Robert Card continues tonight in Maine. Sources telling ABC News that Card is a member of the U.S. Army Reserves and underwent a mental health evaluation at a West Point hospital after threatening cadets with violence. Authorities say he is behind back-to-back shootings last night that killed 18 people and hurt 13 more. Three remain in critical condition. Police are urging residents to remain sheltered in place. Meanwhile, the rampage in Maine, the deadliest since a Uvalde school massacre in Texas. By 8.58 p.m., the Central Maine Medical Center was in crisis, dealing with a mass casualty situation. The total number of casualties were still unknown, but the resources were strained. By 9.17 p.m., the Lewiston police had a photo of the shooter's vehicle, a white 2013 Subaru Outback with a black front bumper. It would be easy to spot. By 9.26 p.m., police received a call giving them the identity of the shooter. A manhunt began involving over 80 FBI agents, Lewiston police, and surrounding law enforcement agencies. The shooter was identified as 40-year-old Robert Russell Card II, thanks to the courage of family members who came forward. By 9.56 p.m., his car was located at the Paper Mills Trail and Miller Park Boat Launch in Lisbon, and the shelter-in-place order was extended to Lisbon as well. The car that was found came back registered to Card. As surrounding communities remained in lockdown for their safety, the manhunt intensified, and the terrifying hunt for the perpetrator played out. By 10.52 p.m., Card's image was splashing across digital screens nationally, as everyone was warned of the armed and dangerous shooter. The search for Card would ultimately lead to a grim discovery when Card was found dead 
with a self-inflicted gunshot wound on Friday, October 27, 2023, at approximately 7.45 p.m. near the Androscoggin River in the recycling plant in Lisbon Falls, Maine. Robert Card reportedly now found dead after being accused of carrying out the deadly mass shooting here in Maine. Robert Card is alleged to have opened fire at Schmengi's Bar and Grill in the just-in-time recreation bowling alley Wednesday evening in Lewiston, a city of about 37,000. 18 people were killed, authorities said, and all of those individuals have now been identified. Development comes after that massive manhunt described by Maine's public safety commissioner as a full court press to find him. He had recently been terminated from his employment at the recycling plant center. His body was found in the overflow parking lot in the back of a tractor trailer situated about eight miles from Lewiston. So some of the times might be just a tad off only because times have been being changed as official times are coming out with timestamps of arrivals on scene and even the time differences. So some of the reporting is coming through local time. Some of the reporting is coming through at, you know, whatever reporting outlets reporting in their area. So if the, if the times are a little, a little bit off, that's why. But they're directionally correct. Right. They are directionally correct. When the first group of officers arrived, the shooter was gone. And I'm sure that in that instance, they weren't thinking that there was going to be another area that the shooter was going to be at. Obviously, it's troublesome when you show up and the shooter is gone because now you know that you're going to have to go look for them. Typically, they don't leave the scene. So I don't think... They were prepared for there to be another location. First of all, I think no one's ever prepared for an active shooter, no matter how well you prepare for it. Well, of course, but one site alone is hard enough to manage. And so then to have to now manage two sites is a really big deal for law enforcement and for emergency services, especially because technically emergency services is very limited until they know that a scene is secure. So it provides some challenges for them. Traditionally, we've seen active shooters happen at one location. The police respond. Typically, the active shooter is still there. In this scenario, the active shooter left and went to a second target location, and that always provides some challenges because they don't know what the target is. Right. They don't know who they're chasing yet. They're trying to scramble to figure that out, and I think in those few minutes, that's what they're trying to find out. Who's the shooter? What does he look like? What is he driving? So they can start trying to narrow down who this guy is so they can stop him. Obviously, not even 15, 20 minutes later, he's at another location shooting again. And I think that initially, sometimes it can be a little bit confusing because when there is a shooting that's happening, sometimes when people are making calls and they're frantic, they can give the wrong location or they can think that something's occurring at one site, but it's occurring at another site. And so I think there could have been a little bit of confusion there as well because they knew for sure they already had this situation over here at the bowling alley. I think that when the calls first started coming in for the bar and grill, that was probably a little bit kind of like, well, is something really going on there? Or are they misreporting? They did a good job with, with their response. Um, they had a good response time. They immediately called in, which in most areas as part of their emergency management structure, their response structure, they're going to bring in outlying agencies. So they would have already for one incident started getting people in from other agencies. And so I'm sure that Because of how this played out, we're probably going to see some changes in how that response looks now, now that we see how there's some new things to look at with there being more than one location and how that response looks. Right. In terms of the number of casualties that they had and the amount of of patients that they had at that one hospital, how were they managing that or how would a, a hospital typically manage that type of an environment where you have 18 fatalities, and then you also have an additional 13 wounded. It's overwhelming the medical system. What does that typically look like? A mass casualty incident for a hospital is anything that taxes their resources, whether that's people, equipment, anything of that nature. And so 
if you were to walk into an ER, they're staffed for a normal ER night at a hospital. And depending on the level that they are, so different hospitals are graded at different levels based on their capabilities. So a level one trauma center is the best that you can get. They have a requirement to have certain people on staff at all times so they can deal with emergent trauma situations with patients when they come in. So in a situation like this with gunshot wounds, they're going to be looking for a level one trauma center. That's going to be the first thing. They're also going to be looking for who can handle how many patients at one time. So a lot of things would be happening simultaneously as they're getting word of what's happening. So they would start staffing up their ER. They would pull people in from other areas in the hospital. They would start opening up other areas to allow for more room in the ER. They would quit bringing people back in the ER who aren't truly emergent patients. That's kind of how they would they would start to set up. They would call in all their surgeons because a lot of times with gunshot wounds, there's surgeries that have to take place, life-saving surgeries that have to take place pretty quickly. So the hospitals would be prepping in the background as they're being notified from EMS, you know, hey, this is the situation, this is what's going on. They would be preparing. But I would think that even in this small town, that even that one main hospital wouldn't have all the resources to be able to treat this many patients. They didn't all just go to one hospital. So they were they were being sent to various hospitals. Sometimes what they can do, so if there's not hospitals that are close enough to the area, they can send them there initially, do a triage and kind of prep them to go somewhere else to make sure that they're able to take that trip to a further location and have the best survival rate. As so possible. basically what you would do is you would bring them into the ER, you'd stabilize them in some kind of way, then you'd throw them into another ambulance and take them to a, a higher treatment facility right. somewhere else based off whatever that injury was or whatever that wound is that they're trying to treat. Right. Or if they need a, a particular surgery or something like that, they could send them to Portland or something like that. Another thing that they can do as well is that, and again, this kind of depends on how they're prepped too in their area, but a lot of times in an event like this, they might have a mass casualty bus. They might have oh. groups that are prepared to come in as extra personnel. EMS is probably going to call in additional resources. You know, hey guys, I know that you guys are supposed to come in tomorrow morning. We need you guys to come in tonight. We'll figure out the schedule for tomorrow. Those are the kind of things that kind of happen in the background as they're navigating through this situation. Gotcha. One thing that you can see when the shooter comes in, if you look at the images that were released, is that he does have a, a military stance. And obviously, we know that he was a member of the reserve since 2002, December of 2002, I believe. He came in with a very tactical demeanor. Born on April 4th, 1983, in Bodine, Maine, Robert Russell Card II, known as Robbie, came into this world during a time when tracksuits and leg warmers were all the rage and the United States was grooving to the tunes of Michael Jackson and Duran Duran. As a child, he witnessed the world through the lens of 80s pop culture, enjoying shows like The Dukes of Hazard and playing classic video games like Pac-Man and Asteroids. From an early age, it was clear that Card had a fascination with firearms, a passion he shared with his family. Locals in Bodane regarded the cards as gun enthusiasts and connected them with right-wing militias. The town's residents knew to keep their distance from this close-knit but peculiar family. Card's social media activity confirmed his affinity for right-wing and conservative figures, cementing his controversial beliefs. One local, Liam Kent, vividly recalls a disturbing childhood memory of Card when he was between the ages of 12 and 14. With bloodied hands and a sinister smile, fresh from a deer hunt, with his gun still slung on his body, their frequent trips to the woods for target practice became notorious in the small town. In December 2002, Card enlisted in the United States Army Reserves as a petroleum supply specialist, an entry-level position that raised questions about his motives. He also started college, but it remains unclear whether or not he completed his engineering degree. Two years later, at the age of 22, he tied the knot with Kara Leslie Lamb, who soon gave birth to their son, Colby. Unfortunately, their marriage would unravel just as quickly as it began, just two years later. According to a formal battle buddy, Clifford Steves, who served with Card in the early 2000s, he was a natural in the woods and boasted incredible marksmanship skills. 
Over time, Card climbed the ranks, earning the enlisted title of Sergeant First Class, or E-7, stationed in Seiko, Maine. His military service resulted in several awards, including the Army Achievement Medal, the Army Reserves Achievement Medal, and more. Although Card had no prior criminal record, he had drawn the attention of law enforcement. There was a statewide alert issued weeks before this fateful incident. Card had verbally threatened to launch an attack on his main base, prompting a frantic search by local authorities. He was subsequently admitted for psychiatric evaluation and spent two weeks as an inpatient at the United States Military Academy, West Point. Surprisingly, the military failed to report his concerning episode to the FBI. Adding to the growing list of red flags, Card had attempted to purchase a silencer months before the tragedy. The gun shop owner, however, declined the request considering his answers to questions regarding mental health commitments. It remains unclear if this information ever found its way into the FBI's database. To those who knew Card, they would describe him as a quiet, kind-hearted individual. With recent events, though, we must wonder how much of that was a meticulous facade, a show for those who knew him. Was he a man vexed with psychiatric issues, suffering from some type of mental disorder or chemical imbalance? Was the death of 18 Lewiston, Maine residents a direct result of a mental breakdown? Or was Card a killer struggling to keep his anger and rage at bay in an attempt to appear normal? He had been hospitalized recently. He had lost his job at the recycling plant and his girlfriend had ended things with him, which he was taking particularly hard. Did Card snap or did he premeditate the murder of 18 innocent lives? So Card's a piece of work. And the first thing I want to call out is that he intended to die, obviously. And I say this because he's a sergeant first class in the reserves with experience in combat, like moving the contact, shooting a weapon, those kind of things. He goes into the shooting event with no vest on, which obviously he would have. Right. So he's not wearing any type of protection, which means he doesn't plan on surviving this. He doesn't have his helmet on. He doesn't have his vest on. So though he had a tactical stance, he wasn't tactically dressed. Right. He wasn't dressed in a way that indicated he wanted to survive. A couple things that I wanted to note. So his, his military service has come up quite a bit. And I know that to the civilian population, when you think of the military, you think of somebody who's highly trained in a lot of different military tactics and yes and no. So everybody in the military goes through basic training. They learn certain things, certain, certain things are required for you to qualify with your weapon, for you to throw a grenade. So there's certain things that you, that everybody goes through, but dependent on your job, and dependent on whether or not your National Guard, Reserve, or active duty, it's very different as to how much you're exposed to and how much of that training and that tactical experience you actually get, even throughout the years. The reserves train, unless you're active reserves, like one week in a month, and then they might do like two, two weeks of training or two weeks of something a year. And that's what he was doing. So for starters... That was the amount of exposure that he had to the military. His job, he was a petroleum specialist. In the military, that's more of a technical type of skill set as opposed to like a combat arms skill set like infantry. He wasn't an infantry soldier. He was a petroleum specialist, which means his primary job was setting up fuel points and delivering gas and and those types of things. He was a logistician. He was a, a supply chain person. So that's kind of important. But there is a, a certain level of technical training that goes into being a soldier as well that he did have. Right. Like how to fire his weapon, how to clear a building. Those are things that we teach those guys in that particular job. And then comments like he was real comfortable out in the wilderness or out in the field. That's most soldiers. To me, that doesn't that's not like a significant call out, nor is saying that he was a great marksman because in the military, when you're qualifying 
the majority of those who are qualifying with their weapons and given his job, I wouldn't see that he was doing any special qualifications. You qualify with the firearm that you would be assigned. It's in a very controlled setting and it's not hard to have a good score, honestly. So that doesn't really come off to me as being something super for a soldier. Yeah. So I wanted to throw those things out there because I kind of want to give everybody a little bit of perspective in that so that you kind of understand that. But playing devil's advocate, I would say that he would be a lot more proficient in the execution of a shooting than a non-service member would be. For sure. His marriage. So I believe that he probably got married very young. He had a son the very same year. And so it might have even been that they got married because... She got pregnant and she was having their son, but their marriage only lasted a couple years. And when they divorced in their divorce, they did shared custody later on in 2013, they went in and did an amendment and the son's always, his primary residence has always been with his mother. So he's never lived. Yeah. He's visited his father, but he never lived as a primary residence with his father. Right. I do know that Card's mother on her Facebook has stated that she was caring for his son for a particular amount of time. And the mother of his son is from that area. So that's not a surprise that they would be in the main area. So within 2023, there's been a couple statements that have come out from various family members of Card's speaking about his mental decline over the last year. And they, various members of the family have talked about how they have raised a flag on numerous occasions about he wasn't in a good place and that something was off because he went from being this kind individual, this put together individual to them suddenly hearing voices and, you know, getting really paranoid. And so on May 3rd of 2023, Kara, his ex-wife, and their son spoke to a school resource officer in Topsham, Maine, and they did a report and they were very concerned that they not share that they were the ones that came forward and said anything and said, he's acting really out of character. We're worried. On the top of that report that the officer did, it says, caution if responding to his residence due to his paranoid behavior and that he has 10 to 15 firearms in his house and or truck. So now this information is coming from Kara and her son. So they're both concerned. Right. So then in July, so in July is when he goes to New York. And I'm not sure if he did the firearm purchase, this particular one, before he left Maine, or if he did this in New York. But in July, sometime in July... He legally purchased the Ruger that's found in his vehicle. And this was within 10 days of him being admitted to a hospital later. Right. So then what happened there is that then on July 17th, so that same month, he gets into it with another member of his unit and he starts accusing him of calling him a pedophile and just some other things. They kind of get into a little bit of a physical altercation. And when that takes place, the unit decides to raise a flag and they actually call the police in. So he's away from his reserve element in Maine. He's in New York near West Point. And so they call the police and the police come in. The police pick him up. The police take him to the hospital and he's released that next morning. But when he's released that next morning, he's still saying things and still making like these kind of these threats. And so the unit's like, hey, he needs a command referral. So they do a command referral for him to go see a military psychologist. What is a command referral? A command referral is done when you believe that there's a concern that somebody is having some type of mental breakdown. It's a safety concern to either themselves or other people. This is the commander of the person. They have the authority to say, I think you need to be over in this situation. And then they they refer them in that manner, right? Right. And so in doing that, when the psychologist talks to him, of course, the psychologist is like, he's really got something going on. We need to admit him. So there's not a lot of people that are admitted 
to an inpatient psych facility. That is uncommon. So a lot of times they'll do like a 72 hour hold where, you know, they want to make sure that you're good and then they'll let you out. They don't have a significant reason to keep you there. So for him to be there for two weeks is significant. That's a significant flag to me. Now to top that off. So he's there for two weeks. Now this is why he's in New York. So he comes back to Maine and his reserve command in Maine contacts the sheriff's department and tells the sheriff's department, hey, we want you to do a health and welfare check. We're concerned about him. So still they're seeing these signs that something's up with him. And the command team who did the command referral, when he starts making some of his threats and talking about shooting up the base, he makes a comment that, oh, it's your fault that I can't purchase a firearm now. Mm. So during this time, they did what's called a file six in Maine. And what a file six does in Maine is it alerts law enforcement that this individual is suffering from some type of temporary psychotic episode so that for their safety, that, you know, hey, be aware. If you pull them over, whatever, just be aware. Right. So, it's a caution. Right. To me, that should have some linkage to the yellow flag law that Maine has. And the reason is What's because the yellow flag law. So the yellow flag law. So it's so first of all, Maine is the only one who has a yellow flag law. Nice. <laughs> the other states who have these laws are red flag laws. Ooh. So Maine wanted to have one that was less restrictive and every state's a little bit different. But the just is this for the red flag laws. Generally, a family member or law enforcement can take an action and typically it's done through a judge where your firearms are removed from you for a certain period of time. The period of time, all of those things depend on the state. Now, Maine didn't want to allow for family to be able to come forward and say, hey, you need your firearms removed and go to a judge. So they wanted that to not be so easy. So they made it to where it had to be law enforcement and in addition to that, they also have a stipulation where you also have to have a medical consult before it even is pushed to the judge. So mm. it has to go through the police and then they push it to the judge after the person has been seen by a medical professional. Right. I'm not to sure. To protect the Second Amendment rights. Right. Yeah, I gotcha. But I'm not sure why when they did this file six especially given the things that were said by him, such as he was going to shoot up his base. One of the guys who was responsible, with, which I'm guessing was probably like the first sergeant, had said that he blamed him. And he took it as a threat to him. Like when he was telling people, I'm going to take care of them. They were the reason I can't get a firearm. He was taking it as like them is us, as in me, like me and the commander, because it was because of us. Because of the command referral. Right. Yeah. So I'm not sure why this didn't seem to be more important to the sheriff's department than it was, but they did this file six. And then when they go to do the health and welfare check, he doesn't want to come out of the house. And of course they don't want to get in a shootout. They're thinking maybe he's having mental health issues. And so they back away from the house. And so even then still they didn't do anything. So then on October 18th, that file six alert is canceled. And in between October 18th and when the shooting occurred, he purchased his final firearm. Mm. Now, one of the things that occurred before they canceled the file six was that his brother, Ryan, who's older than him, had told the police that between him and his father, they would disarm him. They would take his firearms, get him away from him and, Apparently that appeased the sheriff's department. That's a lot to me because they're a family with a lot of firearms. He has access to a lot of firearms. And I just don't think that taking the word of, hey, we're going to handle it. We're going to go take away his firearms is good enough. As a law enforcement agency and your duty is to protect the public, I don't think that that was the right answer. And so if that was somehow in their policy or if their policy is lacking, which it obviously sounds like the sheriff's department isn't going to want for obviously a mass shooting to occur. And Maine is actually very low on the list for mass shootings. So this isn't good. 
And I'm pretty sure that they weren't thinking that something was going to happen. Hindsight's always 2020. And I'm pretty sure they thought, well, you know, the family will take care of it. And they went forward with good faith that it would be handled. They didn't read the room right. I think the first indicator was that he was driving a Subaru. <laughs> That's always one of my red flags. <laughs> it's like wearing a fanny pack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're taking all your guns if you're driving a Subaru. You know, for the family, sometimes you make a mistake as a family member of thinking, I've always known them to be this way. They're having this temporary situation. We can handle this. We can handle this in-house. We can handle this as a family. And I don't know if that's what they were trying to do, but they definitely had been raising a flag as well. So I don't know that you can that off on his family. There's a lot of flags that were missed. There should definitely should have been some more activity taken in regards to him as an individual. Because there were a lot of flags and he was in the psychiatric facility. Like there's all kinds of things. He's still buying guns. He's still making threats. Like there's a lot of problems going on with this guy. And just those things alone, just threatening to harm yourself or somebody else is reason for law enforcement to take action or for a hospital to take action. So those are significant things. And so the fact that these things were just kind of being you know, passed over, you know, and then something that really struck out to me was the comment that he made about it being their fault that he couldn't get a firearm. You know, this made me think about when he went to get the silencer. So he went to go get the silencer and he told him about what happened in New York. Well, magically after this file six alert is removed, and I don't know if that was something he was informed about that it was initiated or that it was removed, but then right. he goes and he purchases another firearm, which I'm sure his family wasn't aware. He's a grown man. He doesn't need to tell his family that he purchased firearms. They did take all his other guns. Now he had another weapon. Right. Yeah. And there had been several comments made at one point, somebody had mentioned that to the brother that he had gone and gotten his firearms. Um, so there's there's just been a lot of different things that have come out where there there's a lot of there there just was a lot of flags. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. In the US, there's 22 US states that have the red flag laws, otherwise known as risk-based gun laws. And of those states Four are in the top five for mass shootings between 1982 and 2023. So all of those 22 states, but two are your Democrat states. I don't know how much of a difference that makes. I know that between the two sides, you know, the Republicans tend to be more pro-gun and the Democrats are trying to crack down on, you know, gun laws. But I think that there needs to be a little bit of research in all of that. There is one state out of all of the states who has refused to not only consider red flag laws, but who actually created a a law against any type of action similar to a red flag law, and that's Oklahoma. So in the state of Oklahoma, it is illegal for them to try to do anything that would basically disarm somebody for a reason that like one of the red flag laws would cover. Right. The victims echo a story of courage, sacrifice, and lives lost. Card's first targeted destination was the just-in-time recreation bowling alley, with eight lives being cut tragically short, to include the life of the youngest victim, a 14-year-old teenager. As Card took aim at random strangers in the crowded bowling center, some ran, some hid, and others took the fight to the shooter. Leroy Walker speaking with our David Muir about his son, 56-year-old Joseph Walker, the bar manager. Police telling Leroy Joseph grabbed the knife to stop the shooter. You take him down, whatever you got to do, you save the others. And in my son's case, he lost his life trying to do it. I don't know if he saved any, I just know he tried. And I, I know in my heart that that's exactly what he would do. Arthur Strout, a father of five, was also at that bar with his father. I left 10 minutes before this happened. I'm there with my son, playing a couple of games of pool, just laughing, some little nachos, a couple of soft drinks. And in that 10 minutes, he's just gone. 76-year-old Bob Violet, a youth bowling coach. He reportedly died at the bowling alley trying to protect the children in his care. Michael Delorio was bowling with his best friend and their spouses. His sister Vicky says he died rushing the shooter to get others to safety. 
and also being remembered Peyton Brewer Ross, a new father who co-workers say was loved by his community. And the bowling alley's new manager, Tommy Conrad, survived by his nine-year-old daughter. Along with Stephen Vozella and Bill Brackett, who were part of a gathering of deaf people playing cornhole. Some of the wounded are now speaking out. Jennifer Zanka says her back was to the shooter when he opened fire, shattering the bone in her arm. I got hit, I think, when I went to the ground, and then I stood up and followed one of the other girls. Uh, she knew how to get out the back way. The retired nurse says doctors tell her she will recover, her daughter with her at the hospital. I just didn't think she was even going to be alive or that I'd ever to see her again. Tommy was one of the fighters. 34-year-old Thomas R. Conrad, or Tommy as they called him, was in the middle of preparing for a pumpkin carving contest he had coordinated for the children when he was gunned down as he heroically attempted to stop the shooter, placing himself between the shooter and the children that were in the bowling alley. He was not just a dedicated manager for the bowling alley, he was also a U.S. Army veteran who had bravely served in combat tours in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Little did he know that his final battle would be fought against a fellow soldier in arms, his courage unmatched against the assailant's assault rifle. Tommy leaves behind his cherished daughter and daddy's girl, Caroline. Then there's 53-year-old Trisha Asseline, or Trish as they called her, who was a part-time employee at the bowling center, but she wasn't working that night. That night, she was at the bowling alley with her sister when the shooter opened fire. She reacted without thought for her own safety and began dialing 911 in an attempt to save lives. But before she could, she was gunned down by the shooter. Trish was described by her mother as a truly selfless and wonderful person, a loving mother, a sister, and a best friend anyone could hope for. Best friends, 51-year-old Michael Deslores II and Jason Walker, ensured that their spouses were safe before making a plan to confront the shooter and disarm him. Their valor came at a tragic cost as they fell victim to the senseless violence. Both men were volunteers with Michael's father at the Sabatis Historical Society where they worked to capture the history of Lewiston. Husband and wife, 76-year-old Bob and 73-year-old Lucille or Lucy Violette were doing what they loved most, teaching young people the art of bowling. Their devotion to the sport placed them directly in the line of fire that night. Bob was recently inducted into the main bowling hall of fame and was a retired Sears mechanic and had been killed trying to protect those around him at the time of the shooting. He was a dedicated youth bowling league coach while Lucy served the Lewiston Main School District for about five decades. Their legacy lives on in their three sons, a daughter-in-law and six beloved grandchildren. The couple had been together for almost 50 years. Then there's 44-year-old Bill Young, an auto mechanic, and his 14-year-old son, Aaron Young, a sophomore in high school, who were enjoying a father and son getaway at the bowling alley. They were both part of the Youth Bowling League. Their lives were tragically cut short, leaving behind Bill's wife and Aaron's mother, Cindy, along with Bill's two daughters and Aaron's sisters, Lauren and Kayla. Less than five miles away from the Just-In-Time Recreation Bowling Center, Chimenji's Bar and Grill was bustling with activity with members of the deaf community in attendance, participating in a cornhole tournament. Here, the shooter, his bloodlust unquenched, parked his white Subaru and continued his ruthless rampage, changing magazines and walking into Shimenji's Bar and Grill and targeting innocent individuals at random. 57-year-old Joseph Walker, affectionately known as Joy, was the manager of Shimenji's and the son of city councilor Leroy Walker. Leroy would describe his son as a good kid who never got in any trouble. He displayed incredible courage as he charged the shooter armed with only a butcher knife, knowing that a significant number of patrons were deaf. Joey's bravery was unwavering, but he was tragically shot and became one of the first casualties. He leaves behind a wife, children, and two grandchildren. Another victim was 36-year-old Joshua Seal, an American Sign Language interpreter for the deaf and the Director of Interpreting Services for Pine Tree Society. He was one of the lead deaf interpreters for Governor Janet Mills during the pandemic and then served as a deaf interpreter for the Biden administration. He had done distance interpreting for Kamala Harris over the past two years. He was a husband and a father of four. He was at the venue to support the Cornhole Tournament and the Deaf League, likely using his skills to warn those who couldn't hear that danger was approaching. Joshua's untimely death leaves his four young children without a father while his best friend and wife, Elizabeth, face a future forever altered. 
45-year-old Stephen Vazella, or Steve, was a beloved member of the New England Deaf Cornhole League community and dedicated 20 years of his life to the USPS. He was a former student athlete who enjoyed baseball and basketball. Tragically, he fell victim to the senseless violence while competing in the cornhole tournament, likely before he even realized what was happening. Steve leaves behind a best friend and a wife, with plans to celebrate their one-year anniversary on November 12th. Another death participant, 40-year-old Brian McFarlane, was determined not to let his hearing impairment define him. He was the first deaf person in the state of Vermont to receive a commercial driver's license, a CDL. A remarkable achievement he wore with pride. Brian had recently returned to Maine and dropped in to visit his mom before heading to the tournament that night. 48-year-old William Frank Brackett, known as Billy, Billy Brackett, was a natural athlete. He was deeply engrossed in the competition when tragedy struck. He enjoyed fishing, hunting, darts, and cornhole. Billy leaves behind his best friend and wife, Christina, and their two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Sandra, who will never again experience life with her loving father. Tragically, the three deaf victims, Steve, Brian, and Billy, would have been unaware of the impending danger that night. 39-year-old Peyton Brewer-Ross was a former wrestler who was actively participating in the cornhole tournament. He cherished the evening's festivities. He worked at Bath Iron Works for the last five years as a pipe fitter after completing an intensive apprenticeship program and was a member of the pipe shop test crew. Peyton leaves behind his best friend and partner, Rachel, and their two-year-old daughter, Peyton. 42-year-old Arthur Strout, known as Artie, had finished Menji's playing pool with his father when the shooter entered. His father had already left by the time the shooting took place. Ten minutes later, Artie's father learned of the shooting. Artie's favorite holiday was Christmas. His wife said he would start decorating around the end of October for the holiday. They shared a blended family of five and decorated the tree together. Artie and Christy had been married for seven years when he was gunned down, and they shared a 13-year-old daughter whose birthday was only six days away on Halloween. Another victim, 35-year-old Max Hathaway, spent most Wednesdays playing pool at Shemenji's with his pregnant wife, Brenda. Luckily, Brenda had already left the restaurant when the shooting started. They were expecting their third child. Max had a deep connection with his younger sister. He loved anime, gaming, and playing pool. He was a full-time dad who always had a good attitude and was down-to-earth and loved being goofy. Then there's 55-year-old Ronald Morin, affectionately known as Ron. Ron was a husband and a father of two with an infectious personality who loved being funny and making others laugh. He was cherished for his humor, positivity, and boundless love. His son, Eric, would refer to him as his best friend. He had a way of making other people's days better. Then lastly, there was 64-year-old Keith McNear, who was visiting his son, Breslin, in Maine from Florida to celebrate his birthday. He fell victim to the shooter as he watched the cornhole tournament. This would be their last time together as Breslin's father tragically lost his life on that fateful evening. Just tragic. Very. It's surprising to me, I'm not sure what the gun laws are in Maine, but it's surprising to me that nobody else had a weapon to stop this shooter. So in the state of Maine, for those that are older than 21 and those that are 18 and above who also are in the military are allowed to carry a concealed handgun without a permit. Maine became a permitless carry state about the end of 2015. Permits are required to carry concealed in places where it would otherwise be prohibited. Residents can also apply for a permit to carry with them when they travel to other states that recognize reciprocity. So that's states that recognize and honor the gun laws and rights for other states. In most states, even in constitutional carry states like Texas, like Florida, Maine is also a constitutional carry state. In most states, they don't allow you to carry a gun concealed or otherwise in an establishment that serves alcohol. Maine does. It's unfortunate that no one in either one of those restaurants had a weapon to stop this guy from killing more people. It's unfortunate. It seems to me, given the amount of time he was at the bowling alley, that he basically went through that clip and then left. And then changed clips, went to the next location. 
Now, at the next location, one of those individuals who passed away, I don't know which, actually passed away on the on the exterior of the building. I don't know if that's somebody that he shot going in, coming out, or if maybe somebody stumbled out there from inside, maybe right. trying to get help or get away. Now, it looks like he was looking for someone. Like he was trying to find someone or he was going to these locations because he thought someone may be there that he was looking for. Is that a possibility? So according to Card's sister, he recently had a breakup that didn't go well, that he wasn't happy about. Right. Because usually when you break up, you're not generally happy. But well, (laughs) we don't know what the circumstances of the split were, but there's been speculation that maybe he was looking for her to include his sister, even thinking this, that maybe he was looking for her because these are two places where they frequented together. And now based on who the victims were at both of these locations, if she was there and she was targeted, she was not one of the ones who passed away. Right. So another thing is that at the first location where the two best friends, Michael and Jason, attempted to charge the shooter. I think that also could have been, you know, a reason that he decided to leave. The bowling alley is significantly larger than the bar and grill was. And if he was trying to, like if he was intent on hitting both locations that night, he knows that the response time was going to be pretty rapid. So I'm pretty sure he had a plan of, you know, like I'm going to be in there no longer than this time. And after being charged by two people, in there naturally when you have some people who get the courage to do something other people get the courage to do something as well yeah so that could have been part of his intention in in leaving and heading on as well the other part of it is also everyone knows that an active shooter their most vulnerable time is when they're reloading right and so it's very likely he went in with an extended magazine fired off a full extended magazine and then left to avoid being at a point of weakness when there's people challenging his position. Right. So he was like, well, I'll, I'll get out. I'll drive to another location. I'll go in with another full magazine, you know, and that might've been kind of his thought process. Right. And from a strategy standpoint, the timing of all of that made it to where, you know, he was out before they showed up at both sites and he probably did the same thing at the other side as well. He probably emptied out the clip that he had and then left and so when when they responded to the next location, he was already gone from there as well. So they missed him at both. You know, they were behind him. Certain psychological diagnoses reveal themselves at certain ages. For some, it can be in adolescence. It can be maybe in your early, early 20s, late teens. At his age, it's a little bit strange. So it makes you wonder if there was some drugs if there was some trauma, if there was some, like what occurred, and we know that he didn't see combat, it makes you wonder what occurred that tipped him over the edge. Right. That's why part of my thought process is that it's more of a snapping and less of a like a dysfunction, like a chemical imbalance. It's more of like, I lost my job, my military career's down the tubes, my wife left me, like his life is unraveling. And in that unraveling, he just snaps And he's like, well, I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to kill as many people as I can with me. A couple things on on some of the victims just that, you know, I wanted to highlight. Tommy from the bowling alley. So he was a military veteran who had been to combat in both Afghanistan and Iraq. I know that his first instinct would have been to try to take him out. It's what we call closing the gap. And it's unfortunate that you make it out of two war zones, to come home and be killed by another soldier. In a bowling alley. In a bowling alley. When I've done active shooter training and drills with people, I always tell them that, you know, a lot of people think that they're going to be one of those. So a lot of people will say, oh, I'll be the, you know, I'll be the fighter. And even in a, in a realistic training scenario, I would have people all the time who would respond completely different than what they thought they would. And I think it's very important that in a situation like this, that you be the very best one of those that you are and embrace it, whether you're a runner, you're a hider, or you're a fighter. 
don't try to be something that you're not because it's not you. So right. be the best you. And if you can hide, hide. If you can run, run. You know, and if that's you, if you're the fighter, then, you know, then fight. And one thing that's important to understand, and we see it in this case, we see a couple fighters right. that try to stop or try to subdue the shooter. And we have to remember that there's a time to try to stop the shooter. And there's a time to not try to stop the shooter because you're not going to be able to close that gap. If he's actively shooting his weapon in your direction, charging a firing weapon is not the best option. Right. So that's why charging when he's reloading is the best time to attack and fight. Right. Which I don't think that he did. No. And so because that didn't happen, there was never a good time to fight. You were right. always at risk going into a fighting situation with this individual who had a weapon. And generally with active shooters, they're not generally not targeting a specific individual. In cases where they are, they may shoot people until they get to the person that they're looking for. But generally they're shooting whoever is out in the open. So if you're trying to get in front of them or if you're not paying attention and you're, you just happen to be in that line of where they're walking. He was alone. He went into, the, you know, the, the first place was a, you know, a large area with a lot of people. And so he definitely would have been outnumbered. Definitely taking time to reload would have been compromising for him. And I can only imagine that for some of these guys, knowing that there's so many kids in there and not wanting to see these young kids lose their lives, trying to do something at a time where it didn't make the most sense. The outcome right. to be favorable. The other piece of it too is, and I think this happens a lot when people aren't prepared and when you haven't gone through any type of active shooter training is that you have a tendency to freeze in place because you don't know what to do. So when you start hearing screaming and you start hearing gunshots and you start hearing these types of things, what happens to the unprepared person is they start to formulate a plan in their brain. And until that plan is formulated, they stand in place they don't do nothing. And so while that is happening, you are 100% a target. Right. So it's important for you to already know what to do before it happens. So you always have to be thinking about if an active shooter comes into this restaurant, if an active shooter comes into this church, if an active shooter comes into this theater, these are the things that I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to hide. This is where I'm going to run. This is when I'm going to fight. And having that in your mind stops you from having to stop and formulate a plan in the middle of chaos. Something to think about. As Maine's most deadly mass shooting event culminates in the death of the shooter, we are not able to celebrate the fact that it's over. For many, it is just the beginning. The beginning of loss. For some, it is the beginning of recovery. For others, it's the beginning of moving forward. The beginning of a new reality for everyone impacted by the tragedy. As we honor the memory of these precious individuals and the community that mourns their loss, let us also reflect on the importance of unity and resilience. Tragedies like these remind us of the need to come together, to support one another, and to remember that even in the darkest of times, there is a glimmer of hope that can guide us toward a better future. Our hearts go out to the victims, their families, and the entire Lewiston community as they continue to heal and remember their loved ones. The victims are added to the long scroll of names of others who have fallen to the weak and senseless mass shooting perpetrators like Omar Mateen, who killed 49 people and injured 50 in Orlando, Florida at the Pulse nightclub. Or Wes Perry, who perpetrated the Route 91 Las Vegas massacre, killing 58 people and wounding more than 850. Their survivors are often left conflicted, uncertain about their ability to overcome the tremendous burden that the event has placed on their lives. Many will find strength in friends. Others will find it in family. All will find strength in love. There will never again be a firework display that doesn't snap you back to October 25th, 2023. The sanctity of safety will never return 
and you will forever watch the doors of restaurants, barbershops, hair salons, and bars closely for the threat of violence. The community of Lewiston, Maine will forever bear these post-traumatic scars of the October 25th, 2023's mass shooting where 18 lives were lost and 13 people were injured. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate to contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.